Amen. Thank you, Peter. In 1992, Pat Buchanan was uh, the featured speaker at the Republican National Convention, and here is what Pat Buchanan had to say about George Herbert Walker Bush, the father, and I quote, he said, he is the champion of the Judeo-Christian values and beliefs upon which this nation was built, whereas his opponent, then-candidate Bill Clinton, stood for, and I quote, abortion on demand, homosexual rights, discrimination against religious schools, and women in combat. He went on to say, this election, now this is in 1992, is about much more than who gets what. It's about who we are. It's about what we believe. It's about what we stand for as Americans. There is a religious war going on in our country, he said, for the soul of America. It is a culture war as critical to the kind of nation we will one day be as is the Cold War itself, end of quote. That was in 1992. In the year 2017, around early part of the summer, a book was released called The Benedict Option by an author whose uh, name is Rod Dreher. He is a Christian ethicist and a cultural uh, commentator. And here's what he had to say about this culture war. He said, today, the culture war as we know it is over. Is over. He said that, he said that the so-called values voter, the social and religious conservatives, have been defeated and are being swept to the political margins. Friends, I hate to admit it, but I think he's right. I think he's right. I think the die has been cast. I think that our culture has made its decision where it wants to follow, that it has rejected Judeo-Christian values, and that the culture is moving headlong in a direction that is not honoring to God. That's what Rod Dreher was saying. That's where I see things at. And all the commentators that I read these days are saying the same thing, that the culture war that we think we're engaged in is actually now over. Um, the tide is turned toward moral liberalism, toward relativism, toward sex as recreation, toward same-sex unions. The country is largely in the bag on these liberal social issues. We have entered into a new era in America, which we would refer to, or commentators refer to, as the neo-pagan era. That is, we are moving away from Judeo-Christian values on which our country was founded, and now moving toward pagan secularism, humanism, and that has become... Uh, what is ruling the day. So the question is, what do we do now that the culture war is over and we still live in America as Christians, as people who believe in God's word and want to raise our children to know God's word and to honor God's word and to maintain these Judeo-Christian values? How do we move forward? Well, that's the intent of this series over the course of the next five weeks not to teach us how to argue with liberals, not to teach us how to win arguments uh, in, in the school of secularism, but rather to instruct us on how do we as Christians preserve our Judeo-Christian values and then pass those values on to future generations. Over the course of the coming weeks, that's what we're going to do. Let's walk through um, some verses together. We're going to look at Acts chapter 20. That's going to be our verse for our chapter. Our, Verses for today that we're going to look at, Acts chapter 20. We give you a little bit of background to Acts chapter 20. Uh, Paul is on his third missionary journey. He's coming to the close of it. 
He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He has this offering that he's bringing for the saints in Jerusalem that have been in the midst of a famine there so that they can buy food and support the church there. He stops off at a little port city called Miletus. It's on the uh, eastern coast of the Aegean Sea. We have a map for you here. If you can find Ephesus on this map, then you can look down south from there and you see the little coastal city of Miletus. And that's where Paul is. And Paul invites the Ephesian elders because on his second missionary journey, he had spent three years in Ephesus instructing the elders, building up the church there, teaching them Christian doctrine. And so um, he invites the Ephesian elders to come down and visit with him in Miletus. And so uh, Paul has some, among the things that Paul says to these Ephesian elders, one of them is a warning. And his warning is about a theological war that is on its way to the front door of their church. And so here's that warning that Paul wants to share with them. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 20, we'll be reading verses 28 through 31. All right, here we go. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you each. Yeah, that, that's right. And then y'all can go ahead and sit down. <clears throat> we'll get to that version a little bit, and maybe I won't butcher it when I do that. By the way, when you were greeting this morning, did y'all figure out who was going to win the game um, on Monday? Was there some talk about what you thought the point spread might be and all that kind of stuff? I didn't know. There was a little, a little chatter going on after, the, uh, after y'all got going in the song, so I figured that's what it was. All right, so let's just kind of walk through these verses together. Verse 28, we'll begin there. It says, keep watch over your flocks and all the flock of which are over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Here, Paul calls on the Ephesian elders to protect their congregation, to protect the Ephesian sheep. As a shepherd would protect the sheep out in their flock, and their flock, Paul's saying the same thing that these Ephesian elders need to protect the sheep, the congregation at Ephesus. You say, well, Gordon, protect them from what? What is he wanting to defend them from? What does Paul have in mind when he says that there's these uh, enemies that are out there? What is he thinking of here? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, look at verse, 39, or verse 29, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. That is, they're going to enter into the church and they're going to ravage the church with their teaching. They're going to ravage the church in that way. And so verse 30, even from your own number, from among perhaps the elders, he says, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away or to trick people into following them to make disciples after them. The enemy here that Paul has in mind is theological error is theological heresy, is false doctrine. That's the enemy that Apostle Paul has in mind. And Paul says here that even from your own evangelical church folks, right there in Ephesus, he says, people are going to rise up who will distort, who will twist the truth of God's word. And they will be savage about it. They will not spare the flock. The word literally there in the Greek means that they will tear it apart. They will rip apart the church with their distorted truth with their, uh, with their false teachings. And so Paul says, I want for you Ephesian elders to be passionate about defending the truth of God's word and, re- and, and make sure that it's being accurately taught. So Paul says, verse 31, last verse here, he says, be on your guard. Remember that for three years, that was the amount of time, remember that Paul had spent in Ephesus for those on his second missionary journey. He says, for three years, 
I never stop warning each of you night and day, even, he says, with tears. Wow. I mean, that's some kind of a warning. For three years, he said, night and day. Y'all remember how I warned you all the time over and over again. And so Paul knew, he was really serious about this because Paul knew that false teachers and false teaching was going to creep into this church in Ephesus. It was inevitable that it would happen. And so Paul says, I warned you about the distortion of God's truth, about theological error. He says, I felt it so deeply. I warned you so deeply that it even brought me to tears as I was thinking about this entering into your church. You say, well, Gordon, I got a question for you. How are those people supposed to know what the truth was. So if somebody comes in and they've twisted God's truth a little bit, how are they supposed to know, how are they supposed to recognize the truth being distorted? Well, I'm really glad you asked. Um, I got a slide for you here, and I want to share with you, and perhaps if you've, been in, you've seen me write this down on a whiteboard before around here around the church, perhaps on a Sunday morning I might have shared this somewhere along the line. Uh, this comes from John Wesley's understanding of where truth comes from. John Wesley taught that John Wesley, the great evangelist and uh, father of the Methodist church back in the 1600s, 1700s, um, taught that there are four sources of truth in our world. He, quali- he uh, identified these, categorized these as reason, tradition, experience, and scripture. The first of those, reason. Reason, what would fall under that bucket of truth would be things like science, uh, things like theologies that we go and study in academia, philosophy, logic, all these sorts of things fall under this bucket of reason. And so through our science, through our study of the world around us, of relationships, we, begin, we are able to ascertain truth through those sources. So that's a source of truth. Another source of truth is tradition. That is what you've been taught, how you've been raised, what your church has taught you, the different traditions that we have in our culture that are present there. And those traditions teach us truth. They are sources of truth for us. We can look back to what the early church fathers taught in the first century, the second century, the third century, and from what they taught, from the traditions that, are, that arise out of that, we are able to ascertain truth. Another source of truth that he taught was, uh, was experience. You remember as a young child, your mom said, don't touch the stove, and you walked over and you did what she said not to do, and right, ow, my finger hurts, my fingers burnt, you burned your finger, and so that's how you learned what, that the stove was hot, that you're not supposed to touch the stove because your experience taught you the stove was hot, it hurts, and so experience can be a truth teller for us, and then there was a fourth source of truth that Wesley taught, and that was scripture itself, that is God's timeless word, Wesley taught And he was right to say, and many other theologians through the years have affirmed this, that God's word is inerrant. That means there's no errors in it. And it also means that it's also taught that it was infallible, that there are no falsehoods in what God's word teaches. That is because it's inerrant, because it's um, infallible, that it is authoritative for all people in all cultures for all time. That is, uh, what is it, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says that all scripture is God-breathed, that God gave this word, and as Wesley taught, a perfect God would not produce an imperfect book. And so out of that understanding of biblical inerrancy and infallibility, Wesley said we have in the scriptures a truth source. Now, you'll notice that the way, the way this, uh, the diagram sets there, that scripture sets above these other truth sources. That means that when my science class does not agree with what's in scripture, that I default back to scripture. It means that when my tradition, that I've been raised up in my church, doesn't teach what's in scripture, then I default back to scripture it means that my experience that my girlfriend and i like to sleep together and when we sleep together it makes the two of us feel very intimate very close together and how could that possibly be wrong 
well, what does the Bible teach on that subject? It calls that fornication. The Bible says it's sin. And so then I default back to Scripture rather than allow my experience to dictate to me what I think is right and what I think is wrong. And so the default in all of these truth sources always goes back to Scripture. Now, I got another slide for you. Here's what some somewhat liberal academic theologians have done with these four truth sources. They've set Scripture out as one equal truth source amongst these other sources of truth. So in other words, if there's some disagreement between Scripture and my experience, then I just have to live with that dissonance. I just have to live and understand that there's some disagreement between the two, and I just try to work that out the best I can. Got another slide for you here, and this is what some of our more liberal theological institutions are doing, and they've basically taken Scripture and thrown it under the bus. They've taken Scripture and said that it is subordinate to these other sources of truth, that we look to reason, we look to experience, we look to tradition, and that if Scripture has something to say into the mix, well, we'll, we'll consider it. But we don't consider Scripture as authoritative. That's what we would refer to as a low view of Scripture. Now, I'll go back one more time to my last slide, and you'll see there what a high view of Scripture is. Okay, that Scripture sets above these other truth sources. I'm going somewhere with this, by the way, okay? so just hang with me. That Scripture is the primary truth source. It is the authoritative truth source in our world today. And that when anything else, any other opinion rides up, you read somebody, man, they wrote a great post on Facebook. Well, I don't care. Does it agree with what's in Scripture? If not, then I go with what's in. All right, thank you very much. Y'all got that. All right, so that's where these Ephesian elders are supposed to get their truth from, right? This is where these Ephesian elders are supposed to sort out Hey, look, theological errors coming into our church. How do we know whether it's right or wrong? Well, we hold it up next to Scripture. And we allow Scripture to determine whether or not what they're teaching is true. Okay? All right, that's our treatment of this text for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, hey, Gordon, you know what? I don't live in Ephesus. So, I mean, and what does this have to do with the culture wars, right? What difference does all this make? my life? Well, that's a really great question. Let's spend some time talking about that. You see, false teaching, false teaching in the church does more than benignly mislead people. That's why Paul called these false teachers savage wolves. He said these savage wolves will come in and they'll give false teaching and it'll, it'll be, it'll have some scripture in it. They'll quote scripture, but they'll twist it enough. And just in that little twist, They will tear apart God's church. They will mute God's church of its impact and its influence in the larger world. Now, there is in the church today some savage wolves roaming through our pews and our theological academic institutions, and they are tearing apart God's church, and they are destroying the message and the witness of God's people. How did they get there? How did they occupy these places of influence? How did they... Why does anybody give ear to these people? Well, the friends, they got there through what I would call assimilation. I spent a lot of time in my seminary years in the missiology department. That's where they were training missionaries because I loved the study of culture. I loved anthropology. And one of the, under, one of the tenets in, in, uh, in missiology that they observed was um, a missionary would go overseas. Say they'd go to Central America or they'd go to somewhere in South America or in Africa, some other continent, and they would take the message of the gospel God's timeless truth, supercultural, can go anywhere, anytime, any people, and they bring God's word and they plant God's word there, but then the locals have some local beliefs, some things that they believe in, uh, that some false gods that they've worshipped, and they want to add that into 
their worship of the Lord. They want to add that into the teaching of God's word. And there's a word, there's a technical word for that it's called syncretism. We might think of it as assimilation. Okay? And so what's happened in the academic theological circles, and it's, it's bled on down into local churches today, is that you've got this savage wolves that have brought their secular teaching and secular mindset that they've been trained into, and they brought it into the church, and they've quoted passages of Scripture, and they've twisted those passages of Scripture enough, and they've begun to assimilate that teaching into the church because there's some truth in there, right? And so that's what's happened. That's how they've ended up in the church today. And so as a result of that, the pagan, neo-pagan era that we're living in, our culture today, which has become largely pagan, is totally heading in that direction, um, has now also begun to assimilate into the local church. That is, the local church is taking on some of the values. We're moving away from our Judeo-Christian values and taking on some of the values of the pagan, secular, humanist worldview. Now, it's my intent through this series to shine a spotlight on just who these savage wolves are. We'll identify them today. What their false teachings are and to carve out for God's people both an offensive and defensive strategy for fighting back. In other words, we got to figure out, well, if the savage wolves are teaching false doctrine, let's specifically identify what that false doctrine is, and then we need to make sure that we know what God's truth is in, in comparison. And then the next thing we got to do is we got to figure out how do we preserve God's truth and pass it on to future generations. And that's the focus of the next five weeks is identify clearly what God's word has to say to these secular pagan ideas that have come into the church. What is the truth? Know it, learn it from God's word, and then how do we preserve it and pass it on to future generations? Okay, so that's where we're heading with this series. But first of all today, I want to identify who are these savage wolves? What is it that these savage wolves are teaching? And I've got two savage wolves that have entered into the church today, and uh, the first of those I will identify as evangelical feminism evangelical feminism. Evangelical feminists support what we would call an egalitarian view of male-female relationships. There's two words that you need to become familiar with, and you'll be, I'll use them a lot over the course of the series, so don't worry. But um, one is an egalitarian view of male-female relationships. Another is a complementary view of male-female relationships. So egalitarian and complementarian. Um, the egalitarian view of male-female relationships um, says that the females want equality in all things, no gender disparity whatsoever. They want equal voice, just like men have equal voice in culture. The feminists want equal status, just like men have equal status in society. They want to be viewed as equal in every respect. Here's their credo. They claim that no evidence exists whatsoever for the claim of biological differentiation. Sexual differences, they say, are caused by culture and socialization. And thus, gender is malleable, that is, it's fluid.